America has 2.2 million people in prison. If just 1% is wrong, that's 22,000 people. That's a lot of people's lives destroyed. If the system want to take you out of society, they will do it. No matter what laws they have to break, saying that they are enforcing the laws, but they're breaking the law. Having to hear those people say that I was guilty of a crime that I did not commit, and then hear my family break down behind me and not be able to do anything about it, I can't describe the crushing weight that was. I'm not anti-police, I'm just anti-corruption. A lot of times we look and we see something happen to somebody and that's the first thing we say, that could never happen to me, but it can. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today we have a very unusual, amazing group of guests. I have the honor of having the distinguished professor of government and law, Mark Howard, on the show. And Mark's been on before, and so I want to say welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. It's great to be back, Jason. Thanks for having me. And this time he brought back up. With him is one of his star students in the pre-law class at Georgetown that he teaches with Marty Tancliffe. So Jessica Scarato, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Jason. And calling in soon will be an incredible man, John Moss, who has been incarcerated for almost four decades for a crime he most obviously did not commit. So we're looking forward to getting his call just any minute now. Hello, you have a call from... John Mossler. An inmate at Mount Olive Correctional Complex. This call will be recorded and subject to monitoring at any time. Hello? John. Hey there. I'm sorry you're where you are, but it's good to have you on the air with us and give the public some idea of what's really going on in this yeah. terrible case and in this crazy system that we have. So, John, I wanted to go back to the beginning. You grew up in Cleveland, right? And what was that like? Did you have a, a happy childhood? Was it difficult? Can you just give us a paint a little picture of what your upbringing was like? Well, it was it was a good upbringing. Uh, I come up well. Uh, uh, both parents at home and uh, both working parents, and uh, I had uh, two brothers, two sisters. I grew up well, you know. What'd your parents do? Well, my mother she worked in uh, transportation of uh, patients at the Cleveland Clinic Hospital. And my father, he worked uh, for Cleveland Builders. You know, my parents was uh, well providers. They they took care of all of us. So then you ended up in West Virginia, which was the worst place you could have possibly been, as it happens. But you had no way of knowing that. But yeah, you had you yeah. had family in West Virginia. Is that what you were doing there? Yeah, my father's grandparents lived here in West Virginia. It was the reason that I had come here. You know. I wouldn't say I was uh, the best kid growing up. You know, I gave my parents, you know, a hard time. And, uh, you know, they thought that coming to West Virginia might do me some good. And, you know, my grandparents, they needed help. We had a little farm there in St. Albans. And, uh, you know, I worked in the farm and helped my, and my grandfather out around it. And, you know, I started going to school there here in West Virginia. It was because my grandparents needed a little help around the house is, you know, why I come to West Virginia. And, of course, that was where this 
tragedy took place, and it really is a tragedy, um, what happened. Oh, most definitely. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's a tragedy on a lot of levels, because not only was the entire family brutally, gruesomely murdered, and not only was the actual killer allowed to walk free, but of course, what's happened to you is just an un, unimaginable fate, that, that you've been locked up for almost four decades now for a crime that everybody knew from the beginning who actually did it. And this is where I want to bring Mark and Jessica into the conversation because obviously they've been doing some terrific work on trying Uh to get you finally out and home where you belong. So, Mark, how the hell did this happen? So this case came to my attention about six months ago when I was starting to teach a class with Marty Tankliff about wrongful convictions, and we were looking at cases of wrongful convictions. And I talked to Brian Ferguson, who himself is an exoneree, and who's a student of mine at Georgetown. And Brian said, wait till you hear about this case about John Moss. It is surreal. And he kind of talked me through it. I talked to Jimmy Gardner and realized about the friendship, which added a whole dimension to this. And the more I learn, the more I realize we have to take on this case. And so we have a team of three students who've been working on it, and Jessica's here to represent them. And I'll let her tell a little bit more about their experience as they learned about the case. But it's something to think about 38 years. It's just an astronomical amount of time. But also the fact that from day one, literally day one, we knew who committed these murders. And we have no idea how on earth John Moss ever got connected to this. Well, Jessica, let's go back to the murders themselves. Because this is an innocent family. It's almost like a Manson-style killing. Right. This is how terrible this was. So can you take us through that tragedy that happened that John ultimately was turned into a scapegoat for? Absolutely. So it was a triple homicide, took place in St. Albans, West Virginia, which is right outside of Charleston in 1979, December of 1979. It was a mother and her two children. The children were seven and four years old. They were brutally slain. The mother was stabbed multiple times. Both children were hanged in some way and and suffocated. One of the children was drowned. The other was hanged over the door. And juxtapose that with the fact that it was almost Christmas. It was December. So you have a Christmas tree. And then in the other side of the crime scene photo, you'll see a child hanging hanging over the door. So it was an extremely intimate, passionate, just gruesome, horrific killing. And this case is so bizarre because the father confessed on the spot pretty much in great and walked detail. through in great detail and took the police to the house and explained and again this is where it goes to like I mean a monster this guy's a monster he said that he drowned the one child because the kid liked to swim he hung the other one because she liked to swing right mm-hmm. and I forgot what he said about the mom but I mean when you get to that it's like oh my god this is really macabre And one would think that law enforcement would be interested in getting an individual like that off the street where he can't do that to any other innocent people. But what the hell happened? How did John end up? Why is he on the phone with us right now instead of being raising grandkids or whatever he's supposed to be doing? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, Yeah. no, and I've been stoked with that uh, for 38 years. And, you know, if they kill me, it goes back to my uncle, uh, my uncle Arthur, who uh, lives here in West Virginia. It was something about him, but I didn't find out until a few years later that uh, he was the one that told uh, law enforcement there's a John Monster, and, you know, he may know something about the crime. And, you know, I was dumbfounded when the trooper said that on the stand. And, and to this day, 
I don't know, and if anybody else knows, they haven't told me yet, why he told police that I knew something about these crimes. I wasn't there. I, I knew nothing about the family besides they lived in my uncle's motel and later moved into one of my relatives' uh, houses. I see the kids in the yard. They're playing. But these are kids. Why would anybody want to do that? And they try to say the reason being robbery. These are, was people that didn't have anything. The furniture and everything that they had, my family gave to these folks. And why would I take one of the poorest families in the neighborhood to rob? Right, that's crazy. And why would you steal furniture that you already gave to them? That's completely bizarre. Yeah. But And this is so nuts, right? And let's go back to you, Mark. What the hell happened, right? Because here you had a case that was open and shut, yep. right? Easy. This one, this one came with instructions, right? You have the killer going, here it is. Here's what I did. Let me walk you through it. He was almost like he was proud of it. That's right? right. And he also apparently had been abusive towards his wife. He'd said, I'd never wanted to have a family, never wanted to have kids. It, it all made sense. It was done. And we still don't know this. And we'll never know because he's no longer alive. He did remarry the husband. He did remarry. There are some allegations that he was abusive towards his second wife, but he's no longer alive. But we don't know why the police let him go. John has no idea. I mean, we've all tried to think of every possible angle. It defies logic, common sense, common decency, obviously. I mean, you'd think, too, even if a prosecutor is so morally bankrupt that they don't care about locking up an innocent guy, or this one involved children. Right. This, these are innocent yeah. children that were slaughtered in a gruesome manner. And so anybody would want, any citizen, any human being would want that killer locked up forever to keep society safe. But it gets so, even worse because there was essentially a cover up that came into play once they somehow got John. Now, they picked up John, who was incarcerated on another charge unrelated at age 17 and brought him in and beat the crap out of him and got what's probably a classic case of a false confession with physical violence, threatening him, threatening to kill him. And at some point he broke down and that led to his conviction and the fact that it has stuck for all of these decades. So they replaced a true confession with a false That's confession. Right. How and nuts nothing, is that? Nothing matched the crime scene. It's, a, it's absolutely clear that the person who made that false confession, John, knew nothing about the crime. And there's more in terms of the medical examiner changing his report. The medical examiner initially filed a report that stated that the killings took place at a certain time when the husband was home. And 11 months later, when they picked up John, for reasons that we still barely understand, had to do with his uncle calling in and saying that John was somehow involved, the medical examiner changed the time of death by a substantial number of hours something that we've talked to medical experts and medical examiners and they say they've never seen something like this before. So that suggests there was a much bigger cover-up that was involved. Hey. 
anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suit me the best, and then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule at your own pace and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Yeah, Jessica, you've been diving deep into this case now. And I've been so impressed with the work that the Georgetown pre-law students have been doing you and your team as well as the other teams so do you have any theory do you think that there was some connection between the actual killer and and the authorities that they would have wanted to protect him and so he was a ups driver it doesn't really make a lot of sense yeah initially we looked for that kind of connection something that would explain why they made this very sudden switch in focus from the person that we believe is the true killer and the person who all the evidence points to, to John. And it's interesting because there had been previous allegations by the father and husband that his confession was was coerced. He claimed that. Uh, there's very little evidence to actually support that. Of course, we don't have the video recorded interrogation itself. But 
a judge upheld that confession as voluntary. So they were picking a jury for his trial. The judge upheld his confession as voluntary. That exact same day, the West Virginia State Police dispatched troopers to Ohio to pick up John. So it's very unclear why, when you have somebody who all the evidence points to, who has confessed, that confession is upheld as voluntary in a court of law, you're picking a jury, why all of a sudden you would go seek out another suspect, even on a random tip from a person in the community, right? Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And to me, there's no way that that isn't suspicious. There's no way that that isn't a miscarriage of justice. All the evidence, all of the signs point to this one particular person, and they're obviously seeking out, for some reason that that I don't know, another person. Well, I mean, it's hard not to think. You have West Virginia, which may be the whitest state in America, right? And you have initially the confession of the white male suspect replaced by the false confession of a black male suspect. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there, but it sounds like that may have had some role in it. Again, it's impossible to figure out these motives because it doesn't make any damn sense. Okay, so let's go back to it. So, John, you get picked up and brought back to West Virginia. What's going through your mind? Well, we can go back farther than that. Now, when I first met these uh, troopers, I was in the detention home on the unrelated charge, and these two troopers, the chief investigators of a, a triple homicide, they come to Ohio while I was in the detention home to talk to me about these murders. And um, they wanted a sample of my blood. And uh, I told them uh, I didn't have anything to hide. And if they wanted, you know, they uh, pricked my finger and squeezed a sample of my blood on a, a cotton swab. If there was a lady attorney uh, visiting another client, came over to ask the officers what were they doing. And the, the troopers said they had talked to my attorneys in Ohio, and uh, it was okay, and they would be over there later to talk to me about it. And uh, the, the lady attorney advised them that they should uh, come back when my attorney was there. So when my attorney finally got there, uh, he said he never talked to any West Virginia troopers about coming over there and getting a sample of my blood. And he went to court. Supposedly, he got the blood back. But years later, come to find out, this sample of blood that these troopers took while I was in the detention home made it back to West Virginia. But my lawyers were telling me he was able to get the sample of blood back before these troopers left Ohio. But come to find out, they took this blood, uh, supposedly, and uh, they gave it to Fred Zane. And then I didn't find anything out about it until the Zane investigation, and that's when it come out about him fabricating and falsifying reports and everything. And this sample was never disclosed to any of my attorneys during my first trial nor my second trial. But that's how I come to, to meet these uh, two troopers. And Mark, let's talk about Fred Zane for a second, because yeah. this is one of the most notorious figures in American... Um, if there was a Hall of Fame of malfeasance yeah. in the court system, and malfeasance is not a strong enough word, because right. it's actually criminal activity that he was engaged in, but, but if there was a guy who was one of the worst framers of innocent people in the country, he'd be up there, right? There's so many layers of misconduct in this. First of all, why are they coming and taking a blood sample from a 17-year-old in another state, right? So there's 
raises the possibility, what did they do with that blood? They may have actually planted it at the crime scene. Then you've got the person coming in to analyze that is Fred Zane, who's been found in at least 140 cases to have falsified blood and other forensic evidence. And probably there are countless more that we don't even know about. So here we have John, who gets convicted based on a false confession that the police beat out of him, that's classic and completely unreliable, and this so-called blood evidence that had the testimony of somebody who perjured himself and falsified evidence and is a criminal in every respect, and that's the totality of the evidence against John. And so what has unfortunately blocked John from having a chance of coming out is that Zane at the time was not the head of the office. He did all of the work in John's case, but there was a supervising person. And even though that supervisor said, I just signed off on everything Fred Zane did, the fact that Fred Zane wasn't the supervisor, he became the supervisor a few years later, means that courts have rejected John's challenge to his conviction based on the work of Fred Zane. They're somehow saying that it wasn't actually a Zane case, even though Zane did all of the work because there was a supervisor who just was a rubber stamp. And so there are a lot of people who've gotten exonerated who were so-called Zane cases, and Jimmy Gardner is one of them. But unfortunately, they're not letting John join this group, even though he clearly belongs in it. And that's just outrageous. And let's not forget the fact that Fred Zane himself was convicted Right. Yeah. That's hard. Right. It in, is hard. in this system for the idea that a chief serologist would actually be convicted and sentenced to four to 12 years in prison himself. So we have the actual real criminal is the one who falsely testifies and yeah. inculpates an innocent guy which is John, who's on the phone with us now, it's all completely backwards. And what about the public defender? I mean, John, were you, I mean, it sounds like just from the, the little bit that you've told us already, that this public defender you had was not up for the task. Well, the, the first attorney I had in my, uh, my first trial, he was a paid attorney. My parents hired him. I didn't have a public defender until my uh, second trial. But everybody took what was Fred Zane was doing as being the gospel. You know, nobody went back to check anything. After my conviction in 84, my attorney in my first trial, he made a statement in the newspaper during the Zane investigation that he had talked to one of the jurors on the elevator, and the juror told him that you had everything covered, but you just could not explain the blood. Could not explain that blood, but the lawyer, even then, he nobody would go back to check out Zane's credentials to check out any of the testing. They just took his word as being the gospel. My second trial attorney, he done nothing. He didn't do no investigative work in trying to find out if the blood was reliable. Anything. The state of West Virginia wanted to do a DNA test. And Fred Zane, they called him back from Texas during my second trial. And when Zane done the DNA test in my second trial, he he destroyed everything. And, you know, I was not able to have any other lawyer, any other investigators, any other doctor, scientists, or whatever, to review any of Fred Zane's work when he was doing the DNA. And uh, he just destroyed everything. That's why today I don't have the evidence to try to test to find out who is the real perpetrator. Fred Zane knew who he was because Fred Zane, he had the blood evidence, 
And when he found out it wasn't me, he destroyed everything. And my lawyers, they dropped the ball in the early years of my incarceration of questioning the serology work in my case. And Jessica, as as a pre-law student and soon-to-be lawyer, you didn't get into Georgetown without having a lot of active brain cells, right? And obviously you have a big heart, but when you hear this, it must pain you to think about these lawyers just basically doing nothing. I mean, not helping their client. It's almost like a doctor just letting somebody die, right? How does this sit with you? And thinking back on it, what would you have done differently? Yeah, absolutely. And John, for, for that matter, his attorneys never looked for the blood evidence. That's something that we think is, is insane about this case, is that the assumption that every attorney from the revelation that Zane had been contaminating evidence onward has never actually gone to the West Virginia Crime Lab and looked for the blood evidence. And the assumption was that it was destroyed, but we don't know that. And in all five Zane-related Kanawha County exonerations, which is where John was incarcerated, they had found the blood evidence after the fact. After having assumed that it was destroyed, they had found it later. So it might still be there, in other words. So it might still be there, in other words. And nobody had looked for it. And obviously, it's much harder to try to find it now than it was when all these revelations came out in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And so it's, it's so terrifying and disheartening to me that why would you not look for that? That's crazy. And it's so crazy, too. I mean, John, when you were first arrested, who was president? Jimmy Carter? So long ago. I'm just trying to give the audience a sense of how long. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I think it was Jimmy. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A name some people who are listening won't even recognize it so mm-hmm. long ago, right? I mean, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just, it's so, it's so devastating. I mean, and, and listen, more power to you. I mean, the fact that you're still here and still standing strong and still fighting is a great testament to your character. And so I salute you for that. And, you know, I just want you to know. I can never give up. No, you can't. I mean, I can never give up. You know, there's so many things I haven't done. And the one thing I want to do is have control over my own life. I'm 55 years old, and not once have I been able to decide on what John Moss should do or what John Moss can't do. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. John, you've been in for 38 years. Can you tell us what is the the worst thing that's happened since you've been in prison? And are there any bright spots? Was there any moment of hope or redemption that you found while you were in there over all these years? Well, um, the worst thing that ever happened was the loss of family. You know, my mother passed. She was, uh, she was my rock. You know, she missed everything. You know, it was because of her that I was able to fight. I kept the fight. Then I, I lose my father, my, my two brothers. Uh, I lost over half my family. That's the pain of being in prison, of losing a loved one. And you can't show any support to the rest of your family. It's 
that's what that's what makes time so hard. And the fact that you're innocent and these people are doing what they're doing to you, they won't hear your case. That's the hard thing about it. And my hope is when I see other guys, guys that I grew up with in prison, they make it out there and start doing things like what Brian and Jimmy are doing. That's what gives me hope, that the door is not completely closed on me, that I can still get out there. And, you know, I can live the life that I've dreamed of, that I've always wanted to have, maybe have a family. You know, them guys are what give me hope. And then, you know, and what's happening now at Georgetown? Oh, man, I, I, I'm just blown over. And I tell Jessica, Maddie, and Alex all the time, and, and Mark, whenever I'm talking to him, that, you know, I, I love them for what they're doing for me. But never, never in all my life, in all the years that I've been locked up, that I ever thought that I would get what I am getting right now. I did not know there were still people out there that would do the things that they are doing now. I didn't know this. And for them to do what they're doing, it's phenomenal. I mean, this is just unbelievable. And I love them. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm going to be in their life for the rest of my life. You know, whether they want me or not, I'm above them, you know. But, you know, these are the people that's helping me and with my hope. Well, I can say, John, and I know I'm speaking for Mark and Jessica, that when you get out, and we're going to get you out, you'll have a new family, and, yeah. and we're all going to be here to back you up and support you any way that we can. We can't replace the ones you've lost, but you know we'll, we'll do everything we can uh, both to get you out and then to help you when you do get out. And I know you'll be successful and you'll have a chance on the outside to accomplish all those things that you missed out on. So, Thank you. And I think we should jump to the trial itself because that's got to be the worst day of your life where that verdict was read and you, were, and you were convicted of a crime you did not commit and sentenced to life in prison. How did you deal with it? Well, uh, you know, I'm, I was dumbfounded. What I could think about is my family, what I'm going to say to my family, uh, to my mother, because, uh, you know, she had high hopes that I was... Uh, be able to uh, prove my innocence because uh, my family is in Cleveland. Uh, you know, I was there alone. I think one of my cousins, he might have been there, but I just felt alone. You know, there was nobody there. The only thing was around me is a bunch of white faces. There's nobody to judge, the jury, the lawyers, everybody. You know, I just sat there in that court alone. It was, uh, it was devastating. Here I was convicted of a crime that I had nothing to do with. And they knew it. And for some reason, they want to put me away for the rest of my life. And I was dumbfounded over my second trial. You know, I, I just knew, I knew that I was going to win. This, this was my second trial. But then I got to thinking about all the things that the attorney didn't do. And it just, uh, it was just a heavy weight. It was a heavy weight. And... It's just, it's just, it's hard to describe, you know, what they've done. And, you know, I had high hopes that uh, I would get back in there and uh, I would prove my innocence. But it has been over uh, two decades since my last trial. And I haven't given up. I continue to fight with the help of, uh, you know, I call sharpshooters in here. 
because uh, they know this law in and out, and with the help of a few uh, inmates, you know, I was able to get back in court. I even had one of the West Virginia top lawyers, Lonnie Simmons, went to my father again, which I hated, for help and getting legal representation. And uh, it didn't go the way we thought it would. Uh, Lonnie is not who the family or I thought he was. And that was a devastating blow. And, you know, because of the money wasn't there, uh, you know, due process was uh, denied to me. I just didn't understand it and why that I was being convicted again. Why was I going through all this? And because they knew, they knew who done it. Here's a guy that confessed. He showed the prosecutors and police and the medical examiners how he committed the crimes and he said why he committed the crimes. Is there's no loving father that's going to make up the story like that because he wanted the state police to stop beating on him. There's no story to be made up. This is the truth. This is what he said. That's no story. And then come along, he takes the confession back. But they beat this kid, a black kid, in the Parkinsburg Police Detachment. But they don't want to believe that. They don't want to believe that a young kid was beat like he was going down the highway and then at a police station. They don't want to believe that, but they will believe that this grown man, 30, 40 years old, was told and beat into making a confession. And what the cops showing how he did it is what the medical examiner said. The medical examiner said that these are the things that happened. And what had happened was what Paul Reckins has said in his confession. The, the troopers didn't know what had happened because nobody had a copy of that report. Nobody had a copy of the medical examiner's report. They didn't know that the kids was acting up. They didn't know that the kids were spanked. No, Paul Reagan said that in his confession. The medical examiner didn't know this until he did an autopsy. He had the food that was in the kid's stomach, the bruises that were on their body. Nobody knew this but Paul Reagan. And then the medical examiner, he confirmed it. You know, and knowing all this, and I'm sitting there in court, and they said, you've done it. You've done it. And I said, what are you to do? What am I to do? So here I am, pleading, begging for somebody to come help me after 38 years. The only good news is you have an amazing team behind you now, and you have a oh, lot. Oh, most definitely. And you have a lot mm-hmm. of you have a lot of good people out here that care about you. And um, you know, listen, I, I can only apologize for society as a whole to you for what's been done. I mean, it's not going to. It's not going to do much, but I can tell you that it's it's a disgrace. And I think when people hear about it on the show, they're going to be outraged as well. And there's going to be a lot more people that are going to want to help. What are the next steps now? Like, how do we correct this horrendous injustice? You know, a lot of the cases we talk about on the show and, and cases that we've covered are cases where they weren't able to find the actual killer. So they framed somebody, 
right? Which is totally inexcusable as well. But this one's just fucking confusing, right? It's yeah. like you already got this. It's done. As much as I've been doing this for 25 years, I, I can't remember seeing anything so wrong as this. It's just, it's wild. It's just, yeah. it's like aggressive malfeasance, right? It's like aggressive misconduct because you're undoing a rightful conviction and trading it in for a wrongful conviction. You're undoing a rightful confession and trading it for a false confession. It's nuts. So I want to turn it back over to Mark and Jessica to talk about what the next steps are and then how can people who are listening, who are hearing the voice of this incredible man who's been locked up for two and a half times as long as he was not locked up, right? When you think about the fact that he was 16 years old when he was arrested and now he's been in for 38 years, the math is crazy. Um, so, So what are the next steps? How do we get him home and what can anybody else do to help? Well, let me just first say that I had the pleasure of meeting John along with Jessica and Maddie and Alex at the Mount Olive Correctional Complex. And for about two hours, it felt like we were in the outside world in a restaurant talking to a good friend. We had an instant connection. John's a great person, caring, gentle. And I know that you can just see when you're in a prison, you see how the staff respect him. They all know he doesn't belong in there. They all know that he shouldn't be there. So it, it added a real human dimension to be able to, to meet John in person and I think solidified our friendship and our bond, which will never be broken and that I hope will lead to a happy ending of him coming out of prison. In terms of what to do, I mean, what we're focusing on in this class, in this project, I mean, we're looking at cases where there's not much legal hope right now. I mean, obviously, as Jessica mentioned, if we can find the blood evidence, that if it still exists, and if we can test it, that obviously could be an actual innocence claim that could lead to John getting out. Beyond that, the legal appeals process is very, very limited in general. And in John's case, there's not that much hope. So here's where we come in. We're trying to provide broad public audience and support and mobilization to understand that this was a wrong that needs to be corrected. We want to get the public galvanized. We want to get them mobilized. We want to get them pissed off. And we want to get them to force West Virginia to finally do the right thing, which is to free John Moss. Jessica, what are your thoughts? People who are listening, can they write letters? Can they call someone? What would you suggest? People are sitting there listening and they're going, I want to be Jessica. I want to do what she's doing. I get that all the time from people. I want to, I want to get involved. What do I do? What do they do? How do they help John Moss third? Yeah. The question that I was left with after examining this case for so long, and the question that I hope you as, as the audience are left with right now, is why would the police switch from somebody who is, is obviously to us the real killer and go to a 17-year-old black teenager who had nothing to do with, with anything? And I want to pressure that question. And the same folks who were the prosecutors back then are in the prosecutor's office now. And I want to push those folks to answer that question. And I don't think that they have a good answer. So right now we have a petition up on change.org for John, and you can find that petition linked at our website. That's justiceforjohnmoss.com. So you can go visit that. We have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram. And through all of those mechanisms, you can find the phone number for the West Virginia prosecutor. You can give them a call. You can write them letters because I want, I want to push that question that they've refused to answer and that they've been unable to answer is why would you let a real killer walk free for a heinous, gruesome, disgusting triple murder and put this young black boy in prison for no reason? So 
Jessica, I want to give that website information. Again, it's justiceforjohnmoss.com. That'll take you to all the different information that you need in order to get activated. And we're going to build an army around this case. And then eventually we'll get them to back off because that's what we do. We have a tradition on wrongful conviction, which is that every show I like to close with just opening up the microphone to you to say anything you want about anything you want in whatever way you want to. We're going to let Mark go last because he's the professor. Um, <laughs> and so we'll have the student first. Jessica, what are your closing thoughts? Yeah, well, first I want to thank you for having us, Jason and Mark, for the opportunity to participate in this class. It's truly for myself and, and for the other two folks on my team, Maddie and Alex, has been life-changing and transformative to be able to not only work on John's case, but to get to know John's case, John as a person. And I'm sure that everyone who's listening to this loves him almost as much as I do. Uh, he's so compassionate and caring and warm, and it's an honor to not only be able to help him in his in his rightful fight to get out of prison, but to call him a friend and a close friend. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to to be participating in something as big as this. Because like John said, it's not just him that's wrongfully incarcerated. There were, you know, nobody knows the exact number, but tens of thousands of people across the country right now who are in prison for things that they didn't do. It's about reforming the system on the whole. And I can say that myself and certainly other folks in this class have, as a result of this project, a more solidified and a stronger commitment to changing the way that that system works to make sure that folks who are in prison for crimes are there because they did it. <laughs> and we, we shouldn't just, as a, as a society, be putting innocent folks in prison anymore. So all in all, I'm, I'm just so grateful and happy to be able to, to get to know John and be friends with John and be able to be a voice for him on the outside. Well said. And now, Professor Howard, what do you, what do you got to say? Well, first, let me say what Jessica, I think, has shown is that she belongs at any law school in the country and any firm and any organization would be so lucky to have her. And also that applies to Maddie and Alex. As students, you know, they came into this class. It's an unusual class. It's taught by a Georgetown professor along with an exoneree who have this close bond and were childhood friends. And we gave them a set of cases and what they've done with them. I mean, there are three other cases that are mind-boggling, too. John's, I think, is just surreal. But what Jessica, Maddie, and Alex have done is extraordinary. They really deserve the credit for having created the website, for having brought all the attention, for having investigated. I mean, they've worked tirelessly on this case. They've invested their lives. And that's not easy to do when you're a student, when you're a senior. Um, there's a lot of other things going on in your life. But they've made this their priority, and they're so committed and devoted to John. And that is infectious, and I'm completely committed as well, especially having met John in person. And I just want to close by bringing it back to something that I think I want the audience to just think about, which is 38 years. Think about what that amount of time is. Think about what you've done in your life, if you've even been alive for 38 years. It boggles my mind that my friend Marty did 17 and a half years. I mean, that is alone is crazy and surreal. But when you think about 38 years, almost four decades, right, it's just extraordinary. And John, for you to be as strong as you are and inspiring and kind, um, you're just a wonderful person. And we will do everything we can to try to bring you out and bring you home. John, I would like to turn it over to you, too. So it's all yours. I would like to thank you for allowing me to uh, speak on uh, your show. I appreciate it very much. And I 
I can never say enough about my good friends there from Georgetown, Mark and Jessica, Maddie and Alex, and I can't forget Marty. Uh, again, you know, the hope. I'm just, uh, I'm just overwhelmed with everything that's going on with the attention that uh, the guys are bringing to my case and the miscarriage of justice that has happened. It is my hope that uh, people would, would reach out and uh, continue to talk about the wrongful convictions throughout the country, not just me, but throughout the country of guys like me, just to, uh, well, i tell you, it's, uh, it's, it's hard in time to express, you know, how I feel, what I'm feeling. Um, Okay. Oh, my I really appreciate it, Jason, that you're giving me this opportunity. You know, it's, it's, it's been hard because, uh, you know, I don't have my family. That's what I always fall back on, my family. Getting out of here, you know, that's one of the problems I would have to face is not having my family. When I come to prison, there were seven of us. Now there's only three of us, my two sisters. And that's one of the things that I worry about in dealing with, you know, my family not being there. And it's going to be hard. And a lot has changed. And you know, some people say that, uh, uh, John, it's going to be hard. You're going to need all kind of help. And I'm sure, I know that I would need it because the world has changed out there. You know, when I was out there, I was a kid. And now I'm a grown old man. And, and it's one of the things that just I like to be able to rule my own life. You know, just thinking about you all's life out there, uh, it's uncomparable. And I like to have the opportunity to one day well, drive a car, go to a movie again, go see a show. These things were taken away from me for no apparent reason. I've done nothing to deserve this. And... It is my hope, my prayer, that, you know, society now would listen, would hear my cry, and come to my hand and come and help me. Because I need all the help I can get. You know, I've been filed many, many petitions, and I can't, there's no more. Like you said, now it's time to bring awareness to the corruption of the judicial system. But I thank you. I thank you, Jason, for allowing me that opportunity to speak. I'm not much on speaking like this, but uh, I very much appreciate it. Jessica and uh, Marty, they spoke uh, uh, very good about my uh, my case and my situation. And uh, I appreciate all they have done and what you are now doing. And uh, I really do. I appreciate it. Thank you.
you should know, John, that they speak so highly of you. And I think that I'm speaking for them when I say that I think they feel the same way about you that you feel about them. And I know now just getting to know you over the phone, I can understand why. John, I want to say it's um, been an honor for me to have you on the show. You're one of the bravest people I know of. I'm looking forward to get to know you in person. Your army's getting bigger. And, uh, and it's, like I said, it's a, it's a privilege for me to be able to be a part of the solution. And I'm going to keep fighting for you right alongside these great people. So thank you again for, for joining us. I'm looking forward to, to meeting you, preferably on the outside. And that's where it's, that's, yeah. that's what we're going to be working for. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. I am going to just echo what everyone has said and also give a special thank you to Marty Tankliff, who inspires all of us in this movement every day. And so, John, back to you. All I can say is hang in there because help is on the way. And like I said, the movement is coming. The cavalry's coming. And this is a big part of it. And you did a terrific job. And I'm really honored to have you on the show. So, so. Thank you. And once again, I want to thank Jessica Scarado from Georgetown, star student, pre-law, Professor Mark Howard, also Georgetown University, and of course you, John Moss III. Thank you again for sharing your, your wisdom with us. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to The Innocence Project. And I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.